Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall, and we are joined today by Colorado Mesa University Associate Professor of Social Work and the new Director of Masters of Social Work Program, Dr. Michelle Sunkel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, now, you have been a faculty member here at CMU for 10 years. You've been uh, practicing clinically for 15 what is it about social work that really um, got you into this world? Why did you choose social work? It's a, it's a hard world to be in. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so social work is great because there's so much diversity. So when I first started out, I was working emergency rooms and traumas. Then I moved into forensics. I was going in and out of jails and courts and prisons. I was fighting for policy change for mental health. Um, so it's it has allowed a lot of flexibility to continue to grow and develop. Um, I went international. I got an additional degree in bioethics and then was able to roll all of that information directly back into social work, sitting on ethics boards, championing ethics within my clinical practice over at St. Mary's. And then higher education fits in really great because I get to bring it all into the classroom, teaching students the diversity, the challenges, um, and then actually how to clinically work within social work. So I wanted to take it to the basics for a minute. When you hear social work, I think for everybody, they've got a different picture in their mind of what social work is. So could you tell us what does social work mean to you? And maybe what did a day look like for you? I'm sure every day was different, but what did a day look like for you when you were actually a practicing social worker? Yeah, very good question. When we look at the basics of social work, we look at everything through a micro-meso-macro lens. So who is the individual sitting in front of you? How does that fit within their community, within the context of their community and family members and friends? And then what are laws and policies that impact that person? So every person that we're working with, we're looking through all of those lenses all of the time. We also specialize with vulnerable and oppressed. So we're looking at who has been harmed, who is the most vulnerable, and who's showing up to spaces that need the most help. So when we talk about social work, that's mostly what we're talking about. A day in the life, currently I still spend one day a month approximately in the emergency room doing psychiatric evaluations. And what that looks like is a lot of collaboration, a lot of working with police departments, medical providers, nurses, security officers, case managers. But somebody's coming in, they're having a very difficult day. So they might be suicidal, homicidal, gravely disabled. They might have used um, drugs in the community. They're having a psychosis or psychotic break. And so my job is to assist the medical team. They're going to work on the body. They're going to make sure that they are physically okay and that they are able to move out of the hospital. My job is to make sure that they're mentally okay. Do they need to go into the psychiatric hospital? Do they need good case management wraparound services? Do they need therapy? What family's involved? How does their story connect to what their needs are? So really meeting the person where they're at, providing immediate services, lots of de-escalation, and then working with the medical team so that they can see them more than just the medical body that they're treating. I love that because I feel like probably in a lot of those situations, it is really high pressure and high stakes because of, like you said, if they are, you know, one of maybe the worst points in their day or their life and you're there trying to assist them and help them get out of that and assist the medical teams to make sure that they're seeing them as a whole person. I can feel like that's a probably really high stress job. So it's, it's nice to hear that there's individuals out there who do care about humans so deeply and want to help on that level. Yeah, I was kind of going to go off that too of how here at CME we talk a lot about the human side of healthcare and social work is obviously 
a big piece of that. How do you approach every case or every person with that uh, humility and that just open heart that a lot of social workers have and then go home and cook your kids dinner and live this, you know, normal life and, and, and not bring it home with you. Lots of training. (laughs) We really train on boundaries. So how do you leave it at the door? What is great self-care? Making sure that I'm able to have supervision, have clinical support, have collaboration so that I know what we're doing is really within the efficacy of the patient. And then being able to say, I'm passing that to my colleague that patient is okay. I get to go home. I need to disconnect so that I can be present with my family. So it's really about being present. Who is the person in front of you? Leaning into them. So when they say things like, I'm depressed, we don't take that at face value. Well, what does that mean? Help me understand. What does that term mean to you? What symptoms are you experiencing? What behaviors, what thoughts, what emotions? So really helping not only understand what the client is saying, but what does that mean for them? And then within their space, what's their culture? What's their preferred language? What's their family context? What's their family of origin? Where's their community spaces they spend time? So who are they? And then how does all that information fit within the context of that person? And when we think about these roles, I mean, we talk about values a lot here on campus. And one of the values that keeps kind of bubbling up is, is power. And I think after talking with you from, you know, prior to this conversation, we were really going into how we got to this point, how there's so many different issues that we're facing and that social workers really have to understand the history of the world to really understand what people are going through today and the power that a social worker holds in a situation. Can you kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah, I was just lecturing on it this week. So really looking at the history of colonialism and how that is still embedded into our policies, our procedures, our laws today. So being able to look back to the 1600s, talking about Elizabeth Poor laws, looking at different legislation and who was in charge, who's making those decisions and how that currently impacts our clients. For social workers, then also the positionality we have. We all hold power when we walk in the room. We have usually higher education or different education than who we're working with. We are working within the system. They're receiving services from that system. So understanding the power that we hold and then trying to empower the client that we're working with. How do we support you? What are your needs? What are your wants? How do we make sure that they're being valued and heard and supported even if their decisions are different than what I would want for me or for my family, they still have autonomy and the right to make their own decisions. So supporting that and being okay, sitting with that discomfort and also being able to look at our profession and say, are we really practicing anti-racist? Are we really engaging in diversity in practice? How can we make changes at the state and federal levels that are impacting our clients in a negative way. So really being able to look critically and critically analyze and think through, we are causing harm in some places. We need to adjust that. We need to continue to lean into that. We need to hear from different populations, different groups of people, different voices. So we make sure that we're looking and really leaning into that discomfort. I think you've hit on a number of challenges that you face within the social work field. But what would you say is one of the biggest challenges that either social workers or the people that you're serving are facing today? Resources and funding. Mm. So as always, um, you know, sometimes our psychiatric hospital is full 
And so we have to send somebody for emergency psychiatric care, and it might be to the front range. So we're now taking somebody, sending them five hours away for emergency needed treatment. We're taking them away from their friends, away from their family. It's expensive to go over the mountain. Then we got to figure out how to get them back over the mountain if they don't have that funding. And all of the strengths that they and gains they make in treatment, they have to come back to this side of the mountain and start over, retell their story, reconnect with a therapist. And so funding is really difficult. Limited resources is really difficult. So we have to be very creative. How do we work together? How do we make sure that we're not creating programs in silos, but bringing the community together, working together so we can really support those that are in high need? And do you see CMU playing a role, maybe not in necessarily obviously being able to fund some of these initiatives and programs, but do you see CMU's role in helping to address some of those challenges? Absolutely. Part of that is the MSW program. So with the MSW program, we're going to be able to implement and support new clinicians, well-trained clinicians in this community that hopefully will stay in this community to provide and fill in some of those gaps. A lot of times when we talk about social workers, we think of, okay, they're the ones going to the home when someone's being abused, when someone's using drugs, when all these really hard, sometimes terrible things are happening. What is a social worker's role in that prevention process? And do you address that in your classes? And are you working on any programs or initiatives right now in the community around that? Absolutely. We definitely talk about prevention all of the time. So what can we do before there's an event? What do we, how do we teach parenting before it's a parent's response or reactivity to a child that's acting normal like a child? That's just difficult because we're tired and we haven't slept and people might be hungry, right? And so we talk a lot about preventative services. Um, we have a lot of boards in this community that talk about how do we bring in preventative services. So, you know, looking at different community players, Latimer House, Hilltop, St. Mary's, West. How do we bring in, how do we support? So sometimes it's, we're looking from a medication perspective. If we can get people stable on medications, we know they're going to be serving and working better long-term. Um, if we have housing, I know there's a huge initiative, there's more housing, single room occupancies that are going up. We can get people stable housing. They're safe, they're supported. Now they might engage in therapy. So meeting those basic needs sometimes is the most preventative, getting them in a safe space where they can actually engage and work to do and make different changes in their life. You mentioned that you definitely have worked within um, policy change. Could you maybe highlight a few of the more recent policy changes that you've seen that have positively impacted your work or maybe ones that are coming down the pipeline that you think are really important for people to be aware of? Yeah, I work specifically with mental health. So I spend a lot of time thinking about mental health, diagnosing um, in different systems. So one of the things that we're I worked on was a program getting people with mental health, psychiatric mental health issues out of prisons because their crime was specifically related and directly related to their mental health. And so getting them in treatment best serves them than sitting in jails and prisons. It also saves us hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And so right now, the Western Slope is looking at how do we do that? How do we implement some of those courts on this side? So one, it's preventative, and two, we're actually saving a lot of money. One of the ways that we're doing that is partnering up with the diversion program. So Jackie Berry is running the Lighthouse program and having students work with her, which is part of the diversion program with District 51 and the courts, to keep young adolescents out of the prison system, out of jails, but really working on on um, programming, therapy, support, community engagement, really helping them 
engage in pro-social activities, getting them engaged in school and having them complete successfully. I have to say, when I heard about the Lighthouse program, I was pretty blown away by it. And I think it's an example of why our community is so wonderful that you have D51, the diversion program, CMUs, social work students and faculty all coming together to address this problem. And so now we have the offices on campus here and the program is up and running and our students are involved and they're getting real world hands-on experience that is really hopefully going to impact the youth here in the Grand Valley. So I know I was really excited when I heard that the Lighthouse program was taking off. Yeah. And what, what happens? So, you know, we talk about, oh, there's this program, it exists. There's all these partners who are involved. But let's talk about the, the, the nitty gritty details a little bit, because your social work students are actually paired with District 51 students. So I don't know if that's middle or high school, um, but they're here and they're able to have a friend or someone who's just listening to them or maybe shooting some hoops with them say, Hey, things are hard, but you're going to get past it. You have somebody on your team who can help you through that. And how, how do you teach your students to have empathy? Cause sometimes it might not be innate. Absolutely. We work in the classroom, we train our students. So micro, meso, macro, we're teaching those fundamental skills. So how do you interview somebody? How do you develop rapport with somebody? So they're practicing it in the classroom before they're ever working with real humans. So they're practicing on their colleagues, other students. The professor comes in, we model it, we show that for them. Then we're having them read about things, write about things, watching videos. They're applying theory. So, okay, I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to make sure I know and understand what I'm doing. Then I'm going to practice it. Then at the bachelor level, their senior year, they go out into the community and they work alongside professionals like Jackie, where they get to work with students. They get to provide that professional mentorship, talk about boundaries, run groups, um, engage with family members, run group meetings, talk to the student. Why did you do that? Where did that come from? Talk about trauma. They have to stay within scope. They can't do therapy, but really understanding what has happened that got them to this place, then they can push out and implement different resources. At the graduate level, they can actually do some of that therapy. They can run more clinical groups. They can engage in those therapeutic process at a higher level. A lot of what you're talking about is building relationships with people, all different kinds of people from all different backgrounds. And a big piece of that is trust. You know, you're not going to open up, talk to somebody about your needs and what you're going through if you don't have that trust. And I think there's something there that every person in the world can probably take from to use in their own life and their own relationships and their own struggles and challenges. What advice would you give to some of our listeners who are maybe like, yeah, I like, I cannot get through to my son or my sister about X, Y, or Z. What would you tell them? I would say reach out for professional help and support. So it's tricky because our family roles are we get to be family members. And sometimes we need a therapist. We need a person that's not involved emotionally in the situation to point out information, right? So we can look at our loved ones and go, you know, my partner gives me advice all the time, but I can't hear it. But if my ex person says it, I hear it, it makes perfect sense, and I'm able to move forward. And so sometimes we need that professional person to appropriately mirror and match our behaviors, call out some of our behaviors, give psychoeducation to what's going on, identify traumas, do very specific therapy to help support those behaviors, and then support them to go back into their 
relationships and try again. So redo, um, apologize, work on different communication, practice different skills that they're learning in therapy. So I'd say if you're stuck, if you're feeling stuck and what you're doing isn't working, that's okay. We have lots and lots of supports to build up your skills to try things differently and be more successful. We talk about the stigma of therapy real quick because I know many people for some time now have been trying to destigmatize, mm-hmm. um, you know, mental health services and making it more accessible for everybody. Are you finding that these individuals are making some some headway? Some like, is there some? Are we getting better? I hope so. I'm very optimistic. <laughs> you know, there's obviously pop culture. We hear lots of people use diagnosed diagnoses, they may even self-diagnose, and it's sort of being thrown around in a very casual way, that tells me that there's maybe less stigma that's happening on certain diagnoses. I think when it comes to actually leaning in and getting therapy, that's where the trick is. We also have barriers. It's expensive. You have to have access to, how do I even get to my therapy office? Or do I have an internet access so I can do teletherapy? So part of it is how do we overcome those barriers to give access so people can have a safe space to talk about what's going on? The cool thing is we have so many modalities now. I mean, we can do psychodynamic therapy, we can do EMDR, we can do CBT, DBT, we can do, there's so many modalities that we really get to lean into the client in front of us and say, what is going to work best with you? What are you interested in working on? And here are some of the tools that we can use to see if this is going to make a difference for you. So I can only imagine that all of your years of clinical experience really help you now as a faculty member here at CMU and when you're in the classroom teaching the next generation of social workers. Um, One experience I wanted to hit on is I know you did volunteer in Uganda Mm -hmm. and worked with individuals that both had HIV and or AIDS that had been maybe a part of human trafficking. So I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about that experience and, and if you use that in the classroom, how so? I do use it in the classroom. So first I want to highlight, I actually took 10 CMU BSW students with me. So it was a partnership. They were willing to jump on an airplane, fly across the world with me, and we spent three weeks in country. And it was a really great opportunity for students to use those practice skills in in real time, use it with a different culture, with a different community, and then partnering up. So Why does it look different? Why is the language different? What are the cultural customs? And so giving them the opportunity to work in those countries. The other cool thing is there were two graduates from the program, one from Uganda and one from Kenya, who came over and joined us as well. So we had graduates on that trip as well. And it was really great for them to have these aha moments of boundaries look different. They're using a different language. Dr. Sunkel, you're a woman and they're struggling with that. Why? You know, so really looking at gender roles, um, helping them understand why we didn't ask questions about human trafficking with those um, women that had survived because that was out of scope, that would be inappropriate and that would cause trauma. So instead, how do we develop relationships, rapport? How do we share and show curriculum so they can teach each other and doing more of that macro level work, even though we were working with them individually? You had your own uh, little adventures abroad when you were in grad school. You went to Belgium, Italy, the Netherlands. What did you learn from that experience? Yeah, that was my master's in bioethics. That was an amazing experience. There were 16 students from 14 countries. So we were learning the philosophy of bioethics and applied bioethics. And 
anything that we talked about, there was 14 voices that would say that doesn't work that way in Brazil or in Ethiopia. We don't have, we don't have that setup. Triage doesn't work that way. And so not only did you have to really put on your critical thinking hat, you had to be very humble. Tell me about your system. Help me understand how that works. Okay. There's when I say we have no money in the United States, Ethiopia, when they say they have no money, looks very, very differently. Um, my friend, she's a medical doctor, and she actually had a bus that she effectively outrigged, made it an ambulance, and she drove around to the rural parts of Ethiopia and provided medical treatment. So when we say no money, like no money. And when she was out of supplies, she was out of supplies. And so we would have to... F- physically talk about, well, what did she have? What didn't she have? How, how did that look? How does that look in Brazil? How does that look in Australia? How does it look in the United States? And then we would have to apply theory to it. And so one, I think it really humbled my perspective. It expanded my perspective and it really challenged the way that I think. So really getting me to lean in and be curious about other cultures, about other customs and listen. So you have to be quiet. You have to listen to really understand where people are coming from. And then really being able to bring that back to the United States. So now I sit on an ethics board. I run an ethics board. Um, I help with clinical consultations. And so being able to bring that back into the United States and say, how does this all fit together? When it comes to patient care, yeah, what I mean, you're dealing with so many people with so many different backgrounds and how how are you working through because sometimes it's just I need help how can I get there but other times it's okay this is your background and maybe we don't see eye to eye on that how do you how do you give care when you don't agree with someone because the care is about them not me and that's part of the training is what's my stuff I have to own that I have to know who I am I have to be comfortable with where I come from and my perspectives and I might be sitting in front of somebody that has a very different philosophies experience expectations religions and so I just have to again get uncomfortable what do you need how does this fit for you you know say I'm working with um a 14-year-old who's been sexually assaulted and maybe is pregnant and their family doesn't believe in abortion at all that's okay, right? I might have a different philosophy, a different belief. I need to make sure they're autonomous. The family knows all of their rights, all of their opportunities, and allow them as a family to make the most informed decision. I need to follow laws. So does this meet child abuse laws? What are our policies? Who do I contact? So there's some policies and protocol I, I'm required to by law to follow. The rest is ensuring the family is up to date. The patient, even at 14, is up to date. They get to make an informed decision about best care for them. And then I connect them. So you mentioned you not only have your bioethics um, master's degree, but you hold another master's. You also hold a doctoral degree. And we are bringing on our master's of social work here at CMU. So what makes you the most excited about us bringing on a master's program in social work? It's really fun to teach. Uh, so really getting to push the students as far as they're able to go, not having to say, oh, that's out of scope. But really, you get to do the therapy. You get to do the clinical part. You get to do the diagnosing and really helping them achieve that higher level of thinking and practice. The other thing I'm really excited about is our community. We have huge gaps. We have lots of open positions in this community, which means our clients aren't getting the services they need. And I'm really excited to look three, four, five years down the road and have a competitive market, to have really high standards, and to provide great um, customer service and support to our clients. 
I think what's really neat about the faculty that you work with, everybody's so diverse. They have different backgrounds. They come from different places. They have different fields of study or, or interests. Can you talk about the, the breadth of faculty that you work with in the program? Absolutely. So at the BSW, I have Michelle King. She's an LCSW and trained in Baylor. So that's in Texas. She specializes with grief and loss and is specialized with children and family. We have Professor Aisha Chapra. She's an LCSW and she was trained at the University of Toronto in social justice and diversity. She also has a master's in South Asian studies. She specializes with immigrants immigrants and refugees. She's also bilingual and bicultural. And then we have Dr. Danny Carroll, who just came to us and is teaching in the master's program. He has a PhD in MSW from Indiana University. He specializes in macro work, and he's done a lot of work in Burundi and has helped set up all kinds of organizations there. And then he has also been, his dissertation and specialization on work has been the de-radicalization of white supremacy and extremists. So really pushing back on those ideologies and working with um, the process of colonialism, nationalist, and and changing some of those belief systems. That's a great, impressive lineup. I mean, I know obviously I work here at CMU, but when you hear things like that, it just makes me really proud to work at an institution that does have that diversity of faculty that have those really unique, interesting backgrounds that specialize in certain areas and that all have that real world, real world experience and they're bringing it to our students and our classroom and our community. I agree. <laughs> it's fantastic. So we, we've chatted quite a bit about challenges that social workers face, but I wanted to take just a moment to talk about maybe some of the really good parts of being a social worker, because I can only imagine that that's what keeps you going in this field because you are dealing with such hard, traumatic experiences and individuals who are at their lowest point. So what are some of the really great parts about being a social worker? When somebody reaches out for support, when you see an aha moment, when you see family members just so excited that their person is getting treatment and support when you start seeing behavioral changes or stabilization on medication. So it's all the breakthrough stories. It's all of the successes of there's another person that is healthier. They're doing better. They're moving in the right direction. They're getting their needs met. I can only imagine how good that's got to feel because you're not only impacting that individual's lives, but I assume then there's also that ripple effect where it's impacting their family or significant others or children or parents, and then the larger community and just the impacts that that can have um, from just changing that one individual's trajectory of their life. What's really neat too, I think for students or people interested in going into social work, because it's never too late, is there are so many different avenues people can take. I mean, if you're a social worker, there's a spot for you really anywhere. Can you talk about that? Because we've, you know, we talk about jails and prisons. Oh yeah, social workers there. We talk about policies within the government. Oh, there's probably a social worker advocating for something there. Can you talk about all the vast opportunities out there? Absolutely. So one of the things I tell my students is if you want to work in an agency and there's not a social worker, go create a job for yourself because we really are embedded everywhere. So we have students that do community organizing, working with child welfare, uh, clinical social work, case management, forensics, hospice, international, mental health, psychiatric, medical, military, school of social work, therapy. We're in libraries. Um, Grand Junction PD has therapists that now work with them, EMS. We literally are everywhere and we are gaining more. What I think is going to happen with this MSW program is we're going to see more positions in more organizations pop up because they realize how much support we provide. 
Well, Dr. Sunkel, thank you so much for being here today. This has been a really enlightening, important conversation. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.